You know, the last time we were in the book of Acts, we looked at a section that we called the Miracle Territory. And it basically was looking back upon the first few chapters about what God was doing in and through the church. In fact, we read a section uh, in chapter 5 that said this, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. I mean, wouldn't that be cool? That would be absolutely exhilarating to witness all of that, right? I mean, you'd think that everyone would just be so jazzed, so thrilled at that taking place. But unfortunately, that was not the case. Unfortunately, fierce opposition was really being ramped up during this time. And God instituted the church to be the transmitters of the gospel, And there is an evil one that we call Satan who stands against the advancement of the gospel, the advancement of the kingdom of God. And we read of a story in our passage today how Satan tried to use religious authorities to do the work of silencing the apostles. And what we need to realize is that such measures originate with the evil one, with Satan himself who started his rebellion way back before even the world was created when he rebelled against God and God threw out angels, including uh, Lucifer, who was Satan, and they are now bidding the works of darkness and trying to blind people to the truth of the gospel. When we look at people who oppose the church, let us understand this. They are not the enemy. They are victims of the enemy, and behind that are dark forces. Listen to the biblical record on this. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then um, I skipped over uh, Luke 8, which says, Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who've heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And then we read in Ephesians 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Satan uses people. He uses religious institutions. He uses government authorities. Anyone he can get to try to intimidate, to persecute, and even kill to the tune that I read some statistics that over 300 Christians are killed every month. And then somebody told me after the first service that they just read that this past year, 90,000 Christians have been murdered. It's a stat I wasn't aware of, if if that's truly the case. 
We also know over 200 churches are destroyed, nearly 800 forms of violence done against Christians every month. This hostility, I want to point out, is rooted in Satan's involvement. And again, that's the real opposition for us as believers. Not the people who are the pawns who who do Satan's bidding. They're not the enemy. Now, first of all, do you ever hear those stats on the news? No, never. Crickets, right? But here's another thing you don't see. You don't read this in the scripture. You don't hear the apostles going to battle against the Sanhedrin, the the Jewish Supreme Court. Now, they defend Christ. They speak boldly as God has called them to do, but they don't form rebel groups to overtake the authorities. They don't arm themselves to blow up the temple. There's none of that. They're on mission from God to advance the kingdom of Christ through the gospel. And most of them gave their lives for that. Now, I don't know of any of you here that have been jailed because of your faith. If you have, I'd love to hear your story. But some of you have experienced family rejection because you follow Christ. Some of you have experienced friends who drop you like a bad penny. And many of you have felt the the hatred and the vitriol that society is engendering toward those who hold a biblical worldview. I don't think it's going to get any better. Now, I'm not advocating a martyr complex. That's certainly not why I say these things. I'm not advocating that we imagine some opposition at every mishap or, or, or difficulty. But neither are we to view that every person who opposes us were to see as a, as a combatant. Quite the contrary. Listen how God is trying to kind of set our perspective at when opposition comes. Listen to this out of 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And then in verse 19, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Entrust your souls. That's, a, that's quite a phrase. In other words, my life is on the rock, and the rock is Christ. I don't have to be shaken when opposition comes. We're going to read about a story of where the apostles were miraculously released from jail, escaped from jail by an angel. But there are also stories in Acts and throughout church history where people died in jail. They did not escape. They were tortured for their faith. And God gets just as much glory through people enduring through times like that as he does in people escaping. Both are situations in which God intervenes. He either intervenes through the the heart of the individual in their endurance, or he intervenes maybe in helping them escape. God gets no less glory when believers entrust their souls to him 
in the midst of conflict. Paul said this, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. See, God can intervene either way. I could live or I could die. But for me to live is Christ and to die, I get to be in his presence. You see, none of these are losing propositions. Either way, we are on the winning side of things. That's the perspective. There's no losing proposition for those who rest in Christ. So my dear brothers and sisters, I want to invite all of us, no matter what befalls us, to know that to live is Christ and to die is gain, and we can be all in on that proposition. Amen? The bad news for you is that was just the introduction, so I haven't even started the sermon really yet, so let's all stand as we read our passage, and then the next two hours are mine, okay? <laughs> but the high priest rose up, and all who were with him said, that is the party of the Sadducees, and then filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate and the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in his name, in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. But the high priest rose up, and all were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees. And filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. The highest religious authorities within Judaism the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, are again seen opposing the apostles. And we get a glimpse here of the real reason that this is happening. Uh, Our passage says that they rose up. That means they were standing in opposition. Why? Because it says they were filled with jealousy. See, the apostles were experiencing a great movement of God. And with that brought great popularity. There were many conversions of people going from from Judaism in the thousands to Christianity. They were speaking the truth of the gospel, that which the Sanhedrin opposed. And it was gripping the hearts of people to where massive amounts of people 
were converting. And the apostles defied the request of the Sanhedrin by continuing to preach. Now, Luke gives us a detail into kind of the the party factions on the Sanhedrin that I think are, are quite interesting and shed some light on this passage. We know that the, the Pharisees were a minority party on the Sanhedrin. Of course, the Pharisees were known for establishing these strict legalistic regulations on top of the law that everybody was to follow. But the majority party were the Sanhedrin And the Sanhedrin denied the resurrection of Christ, and they denied the presence of angels and demons. That's interesting. Perhaps Luke is a little amused at this, but perhaps God is getting the last laugh. But when an angel breaks the apostles out of jail, and the message of the apostles is about the resurrected Christ, we see the Sadducees not acknowledging either as we progress through our story here. In fact, they can't even bring themselves to say the name of Jesus. In verse 28, they said, don't teach in this name, this name. Christ is so feared. Christ is so reviled, they can't even speak the name. These were the religious power brokers, and they hated Jesus, and they hated his followers. They never once acknowledged the supernatural nature of the apostles breaking out of jail. And Luke makes sure, by the way, that we know that this was a public kind of event when he talks about a public jail. That doesn't mean that the jail was sitting in the middle of the town square, But we we know that the apostles didn't resist or organize a public protest, but they they quietly were taken by the temple guard. They quietly went along with the temple guard, I should say, and spent some time in the pokey. This was not some secret imprisonment. What was taking place is the temple guard wanted everybody to know. They're traipsing them so that people see this is what happens if you are going to claim the gospel you are going to be put in jail. It's like a public display in that way. See, Satan had thought that he had shut the mouths of the apostles, but he miscalculated the power of God. Verse 19, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. So, God sends to the jail what the Sadducees don't believe in so that the apostles can preach about a risen Savior that the Sadducees deny. An angel opens the door and they escape. We don't know exactly how the angel did it. He just did it. And the Sanhedrin had to face the result of that, though they denied the cause. You know, that's kind of like those who see a design in the world, but they deny the designer. We see all the evidence for a moral law in the conscience of human beings, but we deny the God who put it there. And we refuse to acknowledge the image of God quality in every human being. The angel 
said to the apostles that they have a job to do. They are on a mission to preach the gospel. They were to, in essence, love people to life. In other words, don't just sit there and brag about a miracle. Don't, you know, show everybody on videotape how you escape from, or on your phone, how you escape from jail. Preach. Speak the words of life. And by the way, our message is not about, you know, the higher moral code of the Christian life, the virtues of the Christian life. That's really not the essence of what we talk about. But he says what? It's about this new life. That's what attracts. That's what truly redeems human beings. And what is that life? Well, our message is the life, death, and burial, and resurrection of of Jesus Christ. That's the life in him. John 1.4 says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And then he wrote in his gospel, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. That's our message. That's what we focus on. That's what we're about. There are two other instances in Acts in which there are some jailbreaks in which God miraculously intervenes, and that's in Acts 12 and Acts 16. And he frees some of his servants from jail. And he can certainly intercede to do that, but there were other times in which he didn't. But either way, God is still working. God is still at work. God is still intervening. I may pray for God to heal myself or someone, and God can choose to do that, or he may not, but he is still working. God can do a miracle today, or he may work in the heart of the believer to endure in a situation, but either way, God is glorified. I don't want to limit God and think that he can't do it, think that that was for another age. I want to welcome God's activity. I would even pray for God's activity. But I also understand that he's sovereign. And what we see here is that while Satan was working to shut up the apostles, God's work was greater. In fact, there's a little little word here that I'd like for you to remember. It says that after they were thrown in jail, in verse 19, but... But God. They were thrown in jail, but God sent an angel. Many of us forget that conjunction. We stop before that. We think, I've got this hardship, and we stop right there. But those who recognize the conjunction and see what comes after it, recognize that God wants to do something. God is still at work. Uh, Genesis 50.20 said it this way, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Have you lost a job? God is still working. Did you get a bad report from the doctor? But God still gives life. God has your life in his hands. You have a marriage that's in trouble, but God 
is molding your heart. If there's only one who's walking with Christ, you know what 1 Corinthians tells us? That, that your influence sanctifies the marriage. It brings a holy influence upon the marriage, upon the mate. Your significance and your security are in the fact that you are a child of the king. Your boss, giving you a hard time, riding your back, but God sees your faithfulness and he will reward you for your obedience. Turn to the person next to you and say, don't forget the power of God in your trials. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Don't you just love that? I mean, what is it that these guys who spread out and only one of them could be found at the cross, they were also scared. Peter denied Jesus. What is it that now, what do you want us to do? We have to die? We're going to... What are you calling us to do? We'll go right back into that hot mess in the temple and we'll continue to preach the gospel. What changed? They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And God gave them the unction, gave them the power. That's what took place. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak, began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. So here are the guards at their post, and the highest powers in Israel have just called for these prisoners to be brought to them, and they are going to lower the boom, man. But they're not in the cell. The apostles are gone. In fact, they're right back in the same spot where they got arrested and they can be found preaching again. I mean, just when the the, the high priests and the Sadducees think that they've got everything under control, they, they have finally crushed this movement. They are due for a rude awakening. I mean, How did the guards not notice this? That's part of the miracle of this. You know, the the Sadducees did not believe in God directly intervening, and yet here they are faced with God intervening. But it does not deter them from their evil plans. The heart of human beings can be so blinded, can can be so bent on doing evil that no amount of truth No amount of apologetics can turn the mind of the human being unless the Holy Spirit of God touches that person. And in this case, they needed to see the truth of God in the gospel, that God was at work and they needed to repent and they refused all of that. This very group, a religious group, mind you, the people in the power of that religious group. They should be rallying people to acknowledge God, celebrating that God was at work. 
Instead, they are working behind the scenes in all their evil machinations, trying to keep people away from what Christ was doing and continuing to blind them to the gospel. You know, it begs the question, as a pastor, I think of this, is there anything about our organization, about us as a church, about how, what people experience that moves them away from Christ, that blinds people to truth, that causes a, a heart to be even further hardened? No one makes us have a hard heart, right? Nobody does. Every person is responsible for his or her reaction, right? I mean, listen, that is, that is an, an, an earth-shattering truth that we all have to come to. My parents don't make me do anything. My church doesn't make me do anything. The people above me don't make me do anything. I choose my perspective. I choose my attitude. I choose the state of my heart, amen? That ought to give us freedom. It gives us great freedom, But does our experience in Christianity, does our experience with this organization lend itself to being inauthentic, to faking it? That will keep you up at night. You know, I read of people all the time who lose hope in the church. Usually it goes back to somehow they were hurt. Maybe they were ministering somewhere and they got burned. They got burned. And they've concluded now the church is just not relevant. I mean, they cover up that hurt with now a hundred excuses as to why they're not going to involve themselves anymore in a local faith community. And a large segment of people just see the church as, as pointless. And it's not, to, it's not to take away from the real problems of the church, because there certainly are in any church. But a lot of people just see it doesn't have any value at all. It's pointless. They throw up their hands. They just say, what's the use, right? My dear friends, if I could start at this point, I would say this. Be very wary of calling the bride of Christ any derogatory names. Can you imagine somebody going up to your spouse and saying, oh, Oh, you're the ugly one. Hey, them is fighting words, right? This is, this is the bride of Christ. It's not to deny issues, but we have to start with the fact that this has great value, that Christ died for the church, that Christ loves the church. And so how can I position myself against that which Christ loves and gave himself for? That's the question we ought to be dealing with. And yet, deep down, even within particular generations, there's this animosity. Where does that come from? Well, don't you think these are spiritual issues going on? And don't you think Satan has won at least that particular battle when he can get people to walk away and not be a part? of what he's doing, and to see it all, say, that bride is ugly. I don't like that bride. That bride is this. That bride is that. It's easy to do, especially if you have a situation like you had here in the first century. You see those power brokers. You see the way those people were acting. You say, man, I don't want to have anything to do with that. But just because there's 
a bad marriage doesn't mean there's not a good one, right? That doesn't mean everybody's bad. See, deep down, I think this is what's taking place, and I think this is what can happen, that all of us, no matter what generation, there's something that beats in us a little faster when we experience genuine community. There, there, there is something that beats a little faster when we realize that we can be a part of a, a mission that is beyond ourselves. There's something in us that beats a little faster when we, we come to grips with timeless truths and our, and our hearts just want to explode when we understand God is speaking to us. But how as a church are we to respond when we see these things happen and we see the the problems of the church and you see a whole generation that, that seems to just turn their back on the church? Well, first of all, I can just tell you from my vantage point, I don't want to overreact. You know, I don't want to start wearing skinny jeans and certain glasses to try to appeal to people. I want to be who I am, allow us to be who we are, be vulnerable, admit our faults, admit our weaknesses. You, you know, what you see is what you get, right? I mean, our job is not to try to be the, 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 the cool hipster or even the outdoor redneck gun guy, if that's not who you are, or being the jock. I mean, really, what is this, high school? Is that what we're in now? And that's the way people choose a church? We, we make these surface judgments. It's like, please, we're not all 14. We have to realize that there's a, there's a surface level in which the church has approached these things, but we have to get way beyond that if we expect to have deep fellowship with one another. And the fact is that some of the most satisfying relationships that I've had are with people who are not like me, right? Haven't you found that to be the case for you as well? And that's going to be the case in a church too. And I realize this, that when the church is healthy, it's going to have unity, not uniformity. There's going to be people that are much different from me in in political persuasion, in non-essential issues, a lot different. And you know what? I may not get everything I want. I may not like everything I see. I realize that the church is not going to be perfectly laid out for my tastes and my preferences. And I have to be able to distinguish the essentials, you know, godly leadership, avenues for outreach, biblical teaching, adherence to the gospel from non-essentials, which is basically everything else. I mean, if, if the church is working, there's going to be conflicts. But we work together in honest relationships. We treat each other with respect, with respect. We're truthful. We commit together to equipping and empowering people in their God-given gifts to advance the kingdom of Christ. That is what I think God is after in the, in the church. And so you can have these power brokers that, 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 that commandeer, work against the gospel, and if that's the case, run from that. But then embolden yourself to those that are, that are embracing the gospel and work hard on making that a healthy environment. 
I look at a whole segment of people in our society. They've been abused by the church. I'm not denying it. And the church ought to repent in those cases where it's been guilty. But I'd like to see those people eyeball to eyeball, heart to heart, and say, listen, you know, you may have had a bad marriage, but you know what? You can have a good one. There's, there's, there's great fruit to be had when two people humble themselves. And in the same way, you can have a great experience in a church. Here, here's a place where Christ is honored. And by the way, there are a lot of other places around Springfield where that's true as well. Here's a place where we can commit to mission. We can commit to the truth. What do you say we do this together? And that's what we ought to be holding out to people. You know, our selling point is not what we wear, what kind of music we have. Our best selling point is you. It's you living authentic lives, being honest. And if people don't like that, hey, there are 400 churches in the area they can go to, all right? They got plenty of options. And I'm not going to try to be everything to everybody else, and neither should we try as a congregation. Whether we're cool or hip or any of that, it doesn't matter. I'm going to be who I am, the way God has gifted me, and so can you, and we can let the chips fall where they may, and let's get to it. Because let me tell you something. If we are on mission, and we are giving our lives to do what God was doing like they were in the book of Acts, what does that other crap matter? Nothing. I don't care, all right? We are about seeing the church advance, advancing the kingdom of God. And I can let everything else just fall by the wayside. When we are focused on that, those essentials and non-essentials become very clear. And my wife will want me to apologize, and I said crap, so I'm sorry. All right. (laughs) Let's pray.